Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. When it comes to college football, no other program in the country conjures up the history and the mystique that the University of Notre Dame does. Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the Golden Dome in South Bend has helped preserve the legacies of football royalty and the likes of Newt Rockney, George Gipp, Joe Montana, and Ara Parsegian. Facing the north end of the Cathedral of Football called Notre Dame Stadium stands the Hesburg Library. Adorning its 14-story facade, is the mural that fans have dubbed Touchdown Jesus. On the sixth floor, somewhere behind the blessing hands of Christ, is stored an old movie tone newsreel from November 1937. Arch rival Southern Cal and Notre Dame were tied at six in the waning moments of the fourth quarter in the season finale for both schools. A young backup fullback wearing number 58, playing in the place of an injured starter, took the handoff on a reverse and ran 70 yards to the USC 13-yard line. Two plays later, that same fullback would score standing up and secure the win for the Fighting Irish in front of a crowd of 40,000 cheering fans. Unbeknownst to him, his 70-yard run that won his football team a win on this day would save his own life five years later. Welcome, everybody. This is Phil Schaff here with Phil Horner, and uh, we're on to another full episode of the Missing Chapter podcast. Uh, before we get started, we want to mention the coffee that we're drinking today, and it's an Ethiopian blend uh, from Utica Roasting Company. It's it's incredible, Phil. It's uh, it's bold. Yeah. It even has a, some buttery flavors, which I think is a, a very interesting surprise. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me right away was the the tremendous aroma. And I know we mentioned that a lot about the coffees that we drink, but there's something unique to this one. It's almost like an earthy tone. Yeah, it is. And it smells right. really, really good. And like you said, like a buttery, like a creamy flavor to it. Yeah. I really like it. Yeah, don't even put a, a cream or sugar in it. It's no. amazing. Um, so for today's episode, I, I think we're going to kind of shift gears because there's there's been a lot of episodes that we've talked about with uh, with wartime, with that kind of thing. But we're shifting gears a little bit because we've been inspired by our Christmas Eve episode, which we mentioned uh, in that that first portion there. Uh, that we're we're sports fans. We're right. we're big big sports fans. So it's it's only inevitable that we would eventually have an episode that that deals with sports. Uh, we mentioned that you know I'm a big Syracuse fan. We have orange and blue blood uh, in my family, and as well as some of my in laws are, are huge Notre Dame fans, and as well as yours. I mean, you you guys are are. Huge Irish fans. Right. We we cheer on the Irish every Saturday. I One of my older sisters attended the University of Notre Dame. Um, to quote Ned Beatty from the movie Rudy, there's only one team we watch in our household, and that's the University of Notre Dame. And I think there's a, a beauty to it, Phil, in that, you know, sports really lends itself so well to history. I mean, you think of history through baseball, history through football, you know, take your pick. It really is a reflection of our culture in American history as a whole. Um, and there's so much we can learn from it. too. Absolutely. Very absolutely. relatable. Yeah. And I think with 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 this specific episode, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going in completely blind. You've just mentioned this person, mm-hmm. but I am so excited to hear what you got for us. Today. Yeah. And Phil, this is a story I was reminded of. Probably it's something I came across maybe 12 or 13 years ago. 
And Notre Dame football is definitely a very polarizing school, definitely a very polarizing um, program. Love them or hate them, they essentially are a who's who of college football players over the years. And I mentioned some of them in the intro, your Joe Montana's, your Eric Parsegian's. The person I'm going to talk about today and introduce you to is definitely not somebody that you're going to find anywhere in any Notre Dame record book. Um, You don't see any statues devoted to them in and around Notre Dame Stadium. But I think as we travel through this person's life and what they did for the school and what they did for the country and what they what they did in the context of this point in American history, you're going to agree with me that maybe this person is more more uh, deserving of a statue than anybody at Notre Dame. And the person I'm going to talk to you about today is Mario George Tanelli. Mario George Tanelli was born to Italian immigrants in the Chicago suburbs on April 17th, 1926. And there's really not much to report about his early years, about him growing up. Um, his parents were both blue collar, hardworking immigrants um, who, who lived a comfortable life um, in Chicago, but definitely had to work for it. The one thing that did stand out to me in, in his growing up, I think is kind of interesting and is very reflective of the George Tanelli that you're going to hear about, is that at age six, Uh, Mario suffered severe third-degree burns over most of his body when a trash incinerator accidentally fell on him. And despite the despairing uh, despairing news from a family doctor that he might never walk again, his father in particular devoted uh, a good portion of his time caring for his son, working with his son, son and assisted in his recovery. And within months, Mario was back to walking and exceeding the expectations of his doctors. So I think that's, it kind of gives you an idea of what sort of hard work and values are instilled upon him and the the sort of family that he comes from. Years later, Mario would be enrolled at the DePaul Academy in Chicago, where he was a three-sport athlete and excelled in all three, basketball, track, and football. By his junior year, it became apparent that his best sport was football, and it was also the sport that he loved. Many college coaches uh, at this time are recruiting Tonelli, and by his junior year, Notre Dame head coach Elmer Layden is sitting in his family's living room making a pitch for him to come to South Bend. Aside from Notre Dame, the most lucrative deal being offered to Tonelli was from arch-rival Southern California. But in the end, Mario Mats Tonelli, as he would be nicknamed, decided to take his talents to Notre Dame, where he played varsity football for three years. By his junior year, Tonelli really had not seen the football field all that much. He was oft injured. He was a backup who was used very sparingly, more in specific situation and plays. And the reason I bring that up is because the important game I'm going to reflect on and the the one that we mentioned in the intro, it's kind of remarkable he was even on the field to begin with. So this isn't the the star of the show. This exactly. isn't the captain. This is right. this is someone who has worked his tail off, obviously, and is in his I mean talented enough to be at Notre Dame and play football, but not the main focal point for anyone watching the game, essentially. Right. Almost the exact opposite. Okay. Him. I mean, it's somebody who has put in their time, he's a valuable cog to the team, but at the same time, it's somebody who's had a lot of hard breaks. Um, like I said, very often injured, and really maybe hasn't lived up to his expectations to this point. But when the Trojans of USC visited in November of 1937, Tonelli was thrust into action and for a moment became that Golden Dome hero 
that a lot of people expected him to be when he was you know, brought in as a freshman. And it really solidified his place in fighting Irish lore. With a few minutes remaining in a game deadlocked at six points, it was Tonelli taking a handoff on a reverse who sprinted 70 yards with an entourage of blockers to the USC 13-yard line. He would drag an opponent into the end zone two plays later and all but seal the 13-6 victory for Notre Dame. Irish head coach Elmer Layden had some great quotes that he would later tell reporters about Tonelli's run, referred to it as a honey, which, you know, that gives you, you know, some perspective on 1937. I don't think you'd hear many college coaches referring to plays as honeys. And here's another quote. They all jumped up around me when Mott's broke jail so that I didn't see him go down. I thought he was away saying pretty much I, I really lost sight of him. There was so much going on around me, so much cheering. I thought he'd scored. Oh, my gosh. But Tonelli's quote was even more telling. He simply said, no fooling. I don't remember that run. So, But many others did, and many others would remember that run. Fortunately, all right, for the young man whose life was about to take a very drastic turn, as well as a drastic turn for the United States. Upon graduation in 1939, Tonelli accepted his gold class ring engraved with his initials and engraved with his graduation date on the under on, on the underside of the ring. He played and coached for a brief period of time in a semi-pro football league before signing on with the NFL Chicago Cardinals in 1940, less than a year after Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany had invaded Poland. And by the time the U.S. was preparing for war with the Axis powers, Tonelli made a decision to enlist at the end of his football season, season rather than wait and be drafted. All right. And a year and out is, is kind of what he expected. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to I'm going to enlist, give the country my year. And hopefully after that year, I'll be back in the United States, you know, starting a family and maybe coaching, you know, in the NFL again. He reported to Camp Wallace uh, in Texas in March of 1941, like he was arriving at training camp, carefree, stress free. He was quoted as saying this is just like the first few days of spring practice. All right, He told a reporter just about the time of year, too. I'll be able to use this stuff when I get a coaching job. And in the following months, Tonelli would be reassigned to the 200th Coast Artillery, which was an anti-aircraft unit in New Mexico. With kind of a crazy reputation, these guys uh, were more known for uh, going over the border and and visiting Mexico uh, cities like Juarez for a good time or or to kind of, you know, get into a good fight before coming back and and, uh, going back to their, their duties as soldiers the following day. Commanders looked at the former Notre Dame man, the stern football coach, as kind of being a good influence on the unit that General uh, Douglas MacArthur affectionately referred to as his New Mexico horse thieves. Oh, my God. So the fact that he was a Notre Dame guy, people had this impression, you know what, he's going to be a good influence. Let's put him in with these ruffians, these guys with this kind of particular background and hope he has a good influence on him. That's kind of cool. That is kind of cool. And having the football background. Right. Where, right. You know, it's, he's going to be determined. He's yeah. going to be his know, work ethic. Yes. Yeah. And having a team oriented attitude. That's great. Absolutely. In October of 1941, Tonelli married his fiance, Mary, prior to heading for the Philippines. U.S. forces were stationed at Clark Field on the main island of Luzon near the capital. Two months later, after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Clark Field was on high alert. And shortly after 1230 p.m. on December 8th, Tonelli emerged from the mess hall and from lunch to witness an advancing swarm of planes on the horizon. And by the time the swooping bombers had departed, most of what remained of American air power in the Pacific outside of Pearl Harbor had been wasted and left in smoldering heaps. This was Mario Tonelli's first taste of war. 
and his playing days at Notre Dame seemed all but like a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. Soon after, on that same day, Japanese troops landed on the island in an all-out invasion. MacArthur ordered a full retreat into the surrounding hills and jungles of the Bataan Peninsula. And for the next five months, Tonelli stood shoulder to shoulder with American and Filipino troops to fight valiantly against the Japanese war machine, while their food, their medicine, and their ammunition dwindled. Dwindled fairly quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Tonelli and his fellow soldiers were forced to become really grizzled veterans overnight. And in addition to fighting the advancing Japanese, the Allies suffered from things like dysentery, scurvy, beriberi, malaria. Tonelli himself was left with chills and sweat. And as gallant as the Phil Am troops were, it became more and more apparent that their combined efforts were really just delaying the inevitable. And on April 9th, 1942, with their backs to the water's edge, Allied soldiers raised a dirty bedsheet and surrendered to the Japanese Imperial Army. From his post in Australia, General MacArthur declared, quote, no army had done so much with so little. But here's the contrast here. To a Japanese soldier, and given the circumstances of the war, of the war there was no greater humiliation than to be taken a prisoner. And this really goes back to you know, something Phil, you and I talk about with the code of Bushido and the history of the samurai and this idea that you fight to the death and you are never taken prisoner. And, You're, and there's an honor in that. There's an honor to it. And, and that kind of establishes how the Japanese soldiers, at least in, in this time in history, in 1942, looked at our soldiers, mm-hmm. that, that, that they willingly gave up. Tonelli was among 78,000 Phil Am soldiers now assembled at the southernmost tip of Bataan. And it's interesting, the Japanese had, had assumed at some point, based on the dwindling supplies of ammunition, the dwindling supplies of medicine, they had assumed that there would be prisoners taken, but they never had foreseen really taking this many prisoners. In fact, they had planned for a force of about 25,000. Okay. And when Japanese General Masaharu Homa wanted to move this group men north because there were still American forces south on some of the surrounding islands of the Philippines that were putting up resistance. He wanted to do it quickly. So it was done very hastily. Immediately, immediately as the march began, it became quite apparent that the hunger and disease that were already a problem amongst the U.S. captives and the Filipino captives would only worsen. Tonelli and the others began the 60-plus mile trek to the town of San Fernando where then they would be herded into steel cattle cars and relocated to ad hoc prison of Camp O'Donnell. And this has since become obviously the, known as the Bataan Death March and has been remembered as one of the most horrific experiences for Allied soldiers fighting in the Pacific during World War II. Japanese troops were committed to mental abuse and psychological torture just as much as they were to the very sadistic terror that inflicted on their enemy combatants. And and Phil, I mentioned this to you earlier. I kind of struggled a little bit here in that I certainly don't want to do a disservice to the people I'm telling their story. But at the same time, I'm I'm aware um, and and I know we have some some listeners who are a little bit younger. So I am going to kind of um, tread lightly on some of the specifics I get into and some of the details. And I think that's something, listen, it's great if some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the Bataan Death March want to do some outside research. I would definitely encourage you to do that. But I, some, of the, some of what I was reading and researching was extremely gruesome. 
like yeah, over we, what I'm even used to as a, as a history teacher. And I just don't want to put that into the podcast. Um, but it is something I, I kind of was torn about. Yeah. I, I think that's a smart move. I mean, just to be sensitive for right. the listeners. Uh, and, and, and besides that, the Batan death March, if you've never heard of that, because we have a, a wide um, array of, of listeners who are just huge history buffs, as well as some people just like a good story. So right. the Batan death March might be, very familiar to some people, but it also might be very foreign to people. So I, I think, uh, you know, for those of you that are listening that don't know much about it, I, I'll reiterate what Phil said and encourage you to look it up. Uh, but, but, and still at the same sense, the fact that you're not really going into detail will maybe not diminish his, his story, but actually it really uh, glorify a story even more because of how gruesome that story is that we, we're not even going to mention it. Right. And I think there's something to be said, too, in that World War II, we do tend to concentrate on the European theater of war with Hitler and the Nazis. And I'm not saying that's wrongfully so, but periods and events like this um, might be chapters that people don't know as much about. So hopefully, like you said, you know, I've piqued your interest and you want to do some research on your own. I think that would be fantastic. Without a doubt. So as the prisoners began to march, the Japanese soldiers really felt empowered in their positions of authority and started to really lash out at their captives. The pace was often too much for the men who, like I said, had really experienced so much already and were too weak to keep up. And the stories of what happened to those who could not keep up are especially horrific and quite honestly, very gruesome. The prisoners were often not fed or given water at all. At night, Tonelli talked about how he would lay out his uniform as flat as he could on the grass in order to catch the dew. Because this time period oh. in Filipino or uh, the Philippine uh, season, there wasn't a lot of rain, but there would be dew at night. And then in the morning, he would try and wring out whatever precious drops he could. And yeah, that's how he was trying to compensate for some of the the dehydration. Right. That that's one of the the ongoing themes throughout that march is the is the dehydration. The dehydration, and there were even Filipino citizens who would try and help the um, the soldiers, and they too were punished. Um, so that, that's kind of interesting too. But it was during these early stages of the Bataan Death March that the Japanese soldiers started to confiscate any money, any watches, any pens, things along those lines, anything with gold in them, and gold fillings and teeth you know, would very often be extracted on the spot with pliers. Oh. Especially prized were West Point rings. Japanese soldiers took great pride in obtaining these, and they would often just slice off fingers in order to take them from the American soldiers. Having said that, on the first day of the march, it's no surprise that Mazzanelli's Notre Dame gold class ring, which he was still wearing, caught the attention of one of his captors. And the soldier confronted Tonelli, demanding that he hand over his precious football memento. And Tonelli balked, while a friend of his was reported to blurt out, it's not worth dying for, Mats. The Japanese soldier raised his sword before Tonelli, and he decided to finally turn over his most prized possession. It's at this point that a, a lieutenant in the Japanese military approached Tonelli and addressed him in flawless English. In fact, Tonelli later joked, he had better English than I spoke. <laughs> Did one of my men take something from you? The lieutenant asked. Tonelli responded, he took my Notre Dame ring. The officer produced Tonelli's gold ring. Is this it? He inquired. Yes, that's it, Tonelli said. The Japanese officer leaned in and whispered, I was educated in America at the University of Southern California. He returned the ring to Tonelli and stated that he knew about Tonelli's game-winning play against the Trojans in the 1937 season. I know how much this ring means to you, so I wanted to get it back to you. 
the officer continued, but gave him one final warning. I'm giving it back to you, but you'd better hide it or you'll run into the same problem again. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. All right, everybody, welcome back from break. Um, Phil and I were talking a little bit uh, while, while we were uh, having a little break here. And I, I got to tell you, Phil, I'm so intrigued by this. And I think our listeners are, too, because it's such a different kind of story uh, than what you know, you're used to either. Uh, reading in a newspaper or uh, anything online, uh, any any history videos. This is something that that's very obscure and random. It's very fitting for the missing chapter. But I think the question that I I, I really need answered, and I hope you can answer it. I mean, granted, it's kind of a, a specific question, but when the lieutenant approached Tonelli and said, "What did that officer take from you?" was and, and he, he of course exclaimed, "It was his ring." How did the lieutenant number one? know that it was Tonelli mm-hmm. and number two gained the ring back from the officer. I think what he, what was really important and, and one of the reasons I included this in the beginning was that he was an Italian immigrant from Chicago. And his if you were to Google image Mats Tonelli, you can see he's got very strong physical features. Um, he looks like a football player and, and he fits kind of that image. I think most of you guys as listeners have in your mind and the lieutenant in the Japanese military who'd attended USC recognized him, recognized his face. And it also goes to show just how important of a play that was between two rival schools in that it stood out, you know, to him. Four years, five years later, he still remembered that play and he still remembered that it was Mats Tanelli who had that significant run. So the fact that out of 78,000 men in, in the Bataan Death March, that this individual from USC who had been educated in the United States recognized Mats Tonelli physically and associated him with that play is remarkable and also understood the importance of that ring. I, I, it's phenomenal. It, it's, so, it's so fascinating, especially for, for former athletes right. and for the athletes listening. You always think to yourself, everyone wants to be a Derek Jeter. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to be uh, you know, the, the, the star of the show, but it, it, there's so many uh, athletes that do an incredible job of just having the opportunity to be um, the finisher, right? Having the opportunity to to say, "Hey, listen, I'm going to be in the background, but there's going to be a time where I'm going to be called upon by my team or by my coach to do something remarkable for when my team needs me." Right. And here we are. Tonelli is not the uh, the the star of the show, but he makes this one major play of his career, and. It, ends up saving his life. It ends up saving his life. And I, it's something I mentioned to you prior to this, Phil, is that, you know, when we say college, college football, college baseball, you know, five years earlier, this guy was running on the field at Notre Dame. And now he's walking in a line of soldiers taken captive in a world war. And it really gives you an idea as a historian. And we tell our kids all this time, all the time, how young these men were. Yeah. And you lose scope with that. You, yeah. you lose scope. We'd, we'd entrusted these young, young men with the responsibility of going off and, and really preserving the free world. And the other thing that kind of touched me as I went through and did my research is that we highlighted so much brutality 
so much torture going on, specifically in the Bataan Death March. And in amongst all of that, you have an action between enemies of compassion. That's true. And, and ultimately, as life is being wasted and you're not even you're not even looking at your enemy as being a human being, this individual did and spared Tonelli's life. And I think that's that speaks volumes too in the story. It's it's fascinating. It's incredible. I I, I can't say enough about this episode. I I'm picturing, you know, the way you tell the story. Uh, it, it really, and I know I've said this in the past too in, in other episodes, but it really paints a really good picture in my mind of that moment where Tonelli kind of feels like, you know, his hope was lost. Mm-hmm. You know, that ring that he had he had so valued is now lost. And then it's a it's a surprising uh, foe that ends up becoming a friend, you know, right. and, and reaching out to him. And just the fact that he, he recognized him and it's not like he was a like we said earlier, it's not like he was a Derek Jeter. It's not right. like he was a celebrity that right. anyone re- would recognize. But the fact that there was one person in that entire Batan Teth March uh, that not only had been there, but had recognized him on that one play, it just, it's incredible. Yeah. And you know what, Phil, the other thing I wanted to point out to our listeners too, that really kind of touched me is that Tonelli talks a lot um, later on, and I'll, I'll, I'll get to this in part two of the significance of that ring. And it was more than just the ring that signified his football days at Notre Dame. He talked extensively about what that ring signified to his parents and the fact that he graduated from the University of Notre Dame and the education that he had received and what that represented to his parents. And really, it was more than just a ring. It was the symbol of what his parents had sacrificed for him to get to that school and that was one of the things that he really didn't want to part with, even wow. in in the face of that danger and in the face of that terror. And I think that, you know, that's boy, that's that's important to include in all of this too. And it resonates with both of us because we were yeah. both, uh, you know, college athletes. We have we have unbelievable parents who have sacrificed a ton to get to, uh, you know, where we are and where we were for mm-hmm. for our college experience. And I think any athlete knows that there's always that one coach, there's always that one person or a family member that gives up something so you could succeed in life. And I, th- boy, that really resonates with me. I, I yeah. tell you. And you know, you think 78,000 men in this one event, this one event out of how many years of fighting in world war two. And we, we pluck Mats Tonelli out of that line and we tell his story. And we, you know, we say this in our classes as we toss around statistics, 78,000, a million, hundreds of thousands. You forget that each one of those statistics is a living, breathing human being, someone who was born to parents, who was raised with hopes and dreams and aspirations. They each have a story. Mm -hmm. So hopefully by telling this one story of an individual who happened to have the background of of playing football at Notre Dame, you learn that each one of those men, whether they be a teacher, a farmer, a businessman, their story probably wasn't all that different. And I also think, Phil, you know, we both have young families. Right. His wife, who he married just before going to the Philippines, living at home, completely separated from all this, you know, hoping that her husband was okay, totally unaware of this is what he was going through. There's just so many different elements and just so many different levels to this story that I think is is really it's it's interesting, but it it it, it touches on different levels it as does. listeners. Yeah, it does, and, and I, as historians. Just we always we always talk about on all these episodes with with the, this idea of chance. What are the chances right. 
uh, of all this taking place, it, it it just has this element of like divine providence over the story, over mm. the over the things we talk about. Um, and, and while he was going through it, I mean, he would never, he would never think that there was someone from USC in that, you know. So mm. while you know an athlete is going through some some of these struggles, they'll never know, you know, what their perseverance in that moment where they're struggling is going to influence somebody else or recognize someone's going to recognize that effort. So we always tell our students, you never know because you're the way you act, the, how you perform, how you um, how, how respectful you are to other people is really it, it's your endorsement. Right. So his endorsement was his effort on the field, his his, uh, you know, taking the challenge that his coach gave him and, and making that final run. Um, that was his legacy. That was his his endorsement for his life. Right. So and I think I think legacy is a, an important word that you and I have talked about extensively over over completely. the years. And you know, Phil, as I did this research, um, there's so much more to this story. So much more to this story that I didn't really want to try and summarize too much. I didn't want to try and and limit it to one podcast. So that's why you know I made the decision to to do a part two as well. So hopefully you guys enjoyed part one. You're anxious to hear part two. If you thought this portion of the story which to use a football term is really only halftime. I think you'll really enjoy the remainder of it as well. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast. If you enjoyed part one of Run to Daylight, then stay tuned for next week, part two. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.